in the year 1900, my great-grandfather, William Joseph Remington, got on a boat in Liverpool and sailed to Canada. He was 16, and uh, times were hard in Lancashire County, England, where he was from, just north of Liverpool. Uh, He was one of quite a number of children. I don't remember the number. I don't know that we even know, but I know this, that 16-year-old William Remington decided on his own that, um, that his family didn't have enough resources to support all of them. And it was his duty to go find his way in the new world, uh, perhaps to send back money, but at the very least to be one less mouth to feed. And so without consulting or telling anyone, he got on a boat by himself and sailed across the ocean, entered into Canada, crossed Canada, crossed the border into Washington State and found the one place in the new world every bit as rainy and cold and dark as Liverpool and got a job cutting down trees in a logging camp. Uh, And later on, when he was uh, sent into town by the foreman of the logging camp to gather some things from a blacksmith in town, he noticed that he was working outside in the cold, and this blacksmith was working inside where it was warm, and so asked him, the blacksmith, if he would teach him how to be a blacksmith, and, and he did. And after that, opened up his own blacksmith shop called Willapa Ironworks in South Bend, Washington. And uh, between he and his son, Lawrence, they spent 80 years together working as blacksmiths uh, in that shop. I, uh, I love the stories of my family. Um, it tells me part of who I am and where I come from. It makes sense that we're sort of meat and potato kind of people. That, uh, that everyone in my family, their favorite breakfast is eggs fried in bacon grease with toast, just like they eat in England. Um, it also tells me a little bit about some of our, our family patterns, that it makes sense a little bit more when you realize that most of us in our family deal with pain and conflict either by just cutting off and moving away or by trying to fix it ourselves with our own plan. That's, that's kind of the pattern. Either way, these, these stories give me grounding and a sense of who I am, who my people are, where I've come from. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says this in Galatians chapter 3. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And again, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And he says this in Romans 4, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. My friends, if, if you are in Christ, if you have the same kind of faith that Abraham did, then biblically speaking, you are his children. 
And uh, in this sermon series that we're in, following the big story of the Bible by following the series of covenants that the Lord made with his people, I want to remind us that, that learning about the covenants isn't just about learning information, facts about what God does or what he's done in history. These are our people. This is our Father. I want to invite you this morning to ask yourself, what, it would, what would it be like for you to own Abraham's story? And what God did with him, and specifically the ways that God blessed him and the identity and the calling that God gave Abraham as ours, because this is our family. And that he has given us the right to call ourselves descendants inheritance of this promise. The last time we were in the sermon series, we talked about Noah and the flood and how the flood gives us a sign of the coming judgment, but also communicates afterwards that God is, he, that's not the way that he's going to work. It, with the problem with sin in the world and the, the darkness, the, the corruption, because Genesis 3 through 11 really is a catalog of just how bad it can really get, that God is not going to deal with that by judgment. But even after the flood and after God gives the promise with the rainbow, we're not two chapters on in the story and we're right back at the Tower of Babel. That there is, reading through Genesis, this burning question, what are we going to do with this problem? The whole world is a mess. That that human beings who were designed to be God's representative on the earth, full of life and and blessing to others, have become, through the darkness of sin, people of non-possibilities. And so even though God has offered to protect and preserve the world, the problem of sin hasn't been dealt with yet. We need something that can restore people to save people and their relationship with God, their relationship with each other, and their relationship with creation, because the very creation itself calls out with longing for redemption. So what we get in the covenant with Abraham is the beginning of God's word about how he's going to deal with that crisis. We're, uh, we're cruising along in Genesis. We read about the, the Tower of Babel and 11, and then we get one of those long genealogies. So-and-so lived for so many years, and they had children, and then they lived so many years more, and then they died, and then their children lived so many years, and they died. And then it ends this way. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, and his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And then we hear this. Now the Lord said... The Lord said to Abram... Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Since we're leapfrogging over Genesis, it's, it's easy to miss, but if you're reading along, and all of a sudden you get to this, and the Lord said, it's, it's like a rock that you stumble over. Wait a minute, that breaks the pattern. We've been hearing stories about bad things that happen, and now suddenly the Lord is speaking, and he's speaking to a specific person. 
And, and what we see is something that I never would have thought up and still most of the time think is not a good idea. And that's this, that the Lord's answer to the problem of sin in the entire world is to focus in on one elderly, childless couple in a faraway land who don't believe in him. That's the plan. He's going to work with this 75-year-old couple with no children, and he's going to bless the world through them. But that's the way that he works. Because already we see in the Bible that the Lord's pattern is never to throw things away, but to redeem them, to remake them. And his love, the way that he redeems and he remakes, is always specific. It's never sort of, well, I'll, I'll do a work in Japan. No, I'll do a work with Sema. I'm going to bring him life. I'm going to bless him. And he will become a blessing to the nations. So the paradigm is that, that God chooses Abraham, not because of anything in himself. I mean, if, if you decided even this was a good plan to reach the world through a family, this, this would not be it. Uh, but, but this is the way the Lord works. He, he chooses the unlikely, the lowly, like us. And he works with Abraham and promises him blessing. And the whole purpose is so that he will be a blessing to the whole world. That the Lord's work in Abraham becomes a shining light. It's a test case of what the Lord can do, bringing life from death. And being blessed through life with the Lord, being brought to life, real, real, full, wholehearted, fully orbed life, Abraham becomes a blessing, a life-giving source to those around him, which, by the way, is what we were supposed to be in the covenant with creation, a blessing to the world and those around us. As descendants of Abraham, this is our calling. This is what Michael O. was talking about at the end of his sermon last week, that we've all been blessed. We've been given a lot. So what are we going to do with it? This is part of what it means to have our identity in Christ with Abraham as one of our forefathers is that we receive his commission that the promise has been given to him and his seed, his children, that's us, that the Lord will bless us so that we might be a blessing to those around us. We, awkward, frustrating, difficult we, we are the source of, the God, of God's blessing to the world. He's decided in his own wisdom that he's not going to work in the world aside from working through us, Now, the concept of, um, of blessing and what you do with that mission, what it means to be blessed and to be a blessing to others, to understand that is, is quite complicated. There's a number of places you could go with this. You could say, blessing, that's right, I know what that is. Um, it's, it's stuff and, um, and health, or health and wealth. So 
God is promising to give Abraham a lot of stuff and a healthy life, and he'll do that for us. And so if we believe in him, we'll have awesome lives. And the people around us will look at us, and they'll be like, that's great, I want money and stuff, and they'll want to become Christians too, and the Lord will bless them too, and it will be awesome. Another way to read this is to go completely the other way and say, blessing, it's, it's a spiritual blessing. That Abraham will be blessed when he dies and he gets to heaven. So this life is hard. Um, but there's a great life coming. Um, the world is going to burn up, but we've got to get in the lifeboat. And if we can just get some other people in the lifeboat, then we'll all be blessed at the end of the age. Uh, another potential version is, okay, the Lord has blessed me. He's, he's given me a lot, and I have this calling, and so I'm going to bless other people by being a beautiful, well-organized person. I'll, I'll be beautiful and presentable all the time, and my neighbors will be impressed, not necessarily by how much stuff or money or health I have, but just by what a great person I am. And they'll want to be like me, and they'll want to find out how I got to be so awesome, and, and, and then I can tell them about Jesus. And uh, all of these interpretations of what blessing means, I think, are, are lacking in one way or other. Rather than addressing them directly, uh, I'll just focus on the text in Genesis and point out two things. One is, every previous time before now in the book of Genesis that the word blessing has been used, it's been used in the context of fruitfulness. The Lord blessed Adam and Eve, and he told them to be fruitful and multiply. He does the same to Noah and his family. He blesses them and sends them out to be fruitful, to repopulate the earth, to restore things. So you you can't say that there's not some element of blessing, meaning fruitfulness, human flourishing, that, that we're made for that, and the Lord... Is, is wanting to bring that about in our lives. He's here to bless us and for us to share that with other people. But then when you look at the rest of Genesis, um, Abraham's promise to be blessed with uh, so many children, it's like a nation of children, uh, and a land and relationship with God, And Abraham dies, possessing nothing more than a grave plot and having one child. Having spent his entire life wandering from place to place in tents and having to evacuate the promised land not once but twice because of famine because there was nothing to eat and he went down to Egypt. Jacob runs away from his family and tries to create a new family for himself in another place. Joseph, these are all the inheritance of the promise to be blessed. Joseph is sold into slavery. What the Lord is teaching us through these stories is that blessing looks different than we think. And each of these men was blessed, but the blessing looked more like what I don't know what to call other than life. That Abraham started life as a conflict-avoiding, weasley, small little man who tried to give his wife away twice to save his own skin and died a faithful, generous, gracious man who believed the Lord so much, he believed the Lord had the capacity to raise his son from the dead, the one thing he cared the most about. 
that Joseph is sold into slavery, but ends his life saying, what you intended for evil, the Lord intended for good. Jacob, at the end of his life, is asked to bless the sons of Joseph, and he said this, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been the shepherd, my shepherd, all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, may he bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. At, that this man, Jacob, whose life was mostly hardship, who actually said to Pharaoh, I've had a bitter life, kind of strikes me as sort of a, a little bit of a grumpy old man. Pharaoh really wants to meet Joseph's father, and he says, I've had a bitter life. And yet in it, he can say, the God of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, has been my shepherd all the days of my long life to this day. And he's blessed me, and he's going to bless you. That somehow for each of these men at the end of their life, what they received from the Lord walking with them counted in their own hearts as blessing. And I think that's it. That when we walk with the Lord, not with health and wealth or beautifully clean lives, but when the world sees what the Lord can do to a profoundly messed up person who actually continues to be messed up, but is more and more honest about that and has the Lord bringing progressively more life and hope into their life as the process of that, through that process, that becomes blessing to the world. And in Japan, that is why the people around Grace Harbor who are not Christians say things like, I don't know if I'm a Christian yet, but, but there's something about these people. I'm treated differently when I'm there than anywhere else. So much so that even though I'm not a Christian, if they're doing something, I want to be part of it. If there's an event, I want to be there. I want in on what's going on. And, and that is the kind of transformation we see over the course of the Old Testament that people like Ruth and Rahab say things like, I don't know what it is with your people, Israel, but I want to be part of it. I'm giving up my heritage, and I want in on this heritage because I want to be close to the God that you have. And that is what the Lord means when he says, I will make your name great, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. From, from this point on, Christians, and ultimately Jesus, also have something about them that is attractive because of God's work of blessing working in our lives. And people who are alive smell it and want to be part of it, and they also become blessed. And people who are not alive are irritated, and they want to be away from it. Well, even so, this is a hefty calling. So I want us to see one more thing about what the Lord does in relationship with Abram. Uh, Abraham is bold, and having gone, lived on 15 years from our first promise in Genesis 12, and not really having seen much of the promise come true, he begins to question the Lord, look, I'm, 15 years is, is a significant amount of time. 
Did, did I miss here what you promised me? How will I know that your promises will come true? Verse 8 of chapter 15. He said to him, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer. Which means nothing to us, but means everything to Abraham. Because here's how things worked in the ancient world. There was this thing that we're following the Bible called a covenant. It's a legal agreement, usually between a more powerful person and a less powerful person, like a conquering king. He comes in, he conquers a city. He says, here's some good news. I'm not going to kill you all. But I'm in charge now, and so we're going to make a covenant. And, um, and there'll be stipulations on both of us. I promise to provide you security, um, and I'll take care of you guys. You promise to pay me $30,000 of silver every year, and don't rebel against me, and we'll be good. And the way they ratify this agreement is by taking a bunch of animals, and they cut them in half. And separate them. Heads and front legs on this side. Tails and rear legs on this side. And the conquering king and the conquered king hold hands. And they walk through the mess in the middle. And what they're ceremonially saying is, if I break my end of this bargain, may I end up like these animals. And if you break your end of this bargain, may you end up like these animals. So Abraham says, how am I going to know that you're really coming through? And the Lord says, bring me a heifer. I'm sure Abraham was like, oh, we shouldn't have said that. We're going to do a covenant now. But he knows what's going on. He doesn't have to be told. He gets the animals, cuts them in half, scares away the birds of prey. The Lord recites the stipulations, his promises. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I'll protect your people in Egypt. I'll bring them back. And then we read this. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. That a covenant has been made. The, um, the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, that, by the way, is the same way that the Lord represented himself in the Exodus. Right? A cloud of smoke by day and a flaming fire by night. So the smoke and the fire represent the Lord, and he passes between the pieces, making a covenant with Abraham. And because the author Moses knows that we all know what a covenant is, he lefts unsaid the most dramatic, most important thing in the, old, in the whole passage. Abram doesn't pass between the pieces. He's not made to pass between the pieces. So here's what the Lord is saying. I'm your God, and I promise to be your God, and I'll bless you so that you can be a blessing. I'll protect you. 
I will give you a great nation. I'll bring them down to Egypt. I'll bring them back. And were I to not come through on my promises, which, by the way, is impossible for me, but were I to not come through, may I end up like these animals. Your end is to be faithful, to believe in me, to be my people, to be that blessing to the world. And if you don't come through on your end of the bargain, which, given the nature of sin and the history of the world up to this point, is pretty much inevitable, when you fall short, may I be torn in pieces like these animals. That the Lord makes this life-giving covenant of blessing to the world possible by empowering it with unconditional love. By taking responsibility himself for both sides of the relationship, for that which we are unable to take responsibility for. And from this moment on, Abram may have a greater or a lesser experience of his salvation. He is more or less obedient at different times, and there's times when it doesn't go well. But the basis of the relationship can no longer be destroyed, and the fear of alienation from God is gone forever. And so if you are here today as one of Abraham's descendants, that promise applies to you that you've been given a great calling. You've been blessed by the Lord to be a blessing to the world and to set you free on that mission. He said that he would do what he ultimately did through Christ, to take responsibility for his end of the covenant and to sacrifice his son to cover over our shortcomings that we might continue to live before him, to be his people, that he might restore us to who we were made to be, a blessing to the world. That's why, hear this again from Romans 4, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith because he believed this promise of God, and therefore it was credited to him as righteousness, that God had a righteousness in, of, and pertaining to himself, and his own righteousness was credited to Abraham. And the purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised so that that righteousness would be counted to them, to you, as well. So what does it mean for us to live as the children of Abraham? I don't know if this analogy works, but I'll take a stab at it. Uh, so Susie's on the mainland this week at a wedding. And, um, and so I took the week off to be with my kids, to give her a week away with her friends, go to the wedding. It's uh, one of her best friends, her seminary roommate. Um, and so I would watch the kids. Uh, but then, um, tragically, Todd's mom fell ill this week, and so... Todd is gone, and we're now in a situation where Todd's gone, and 
I'm gone, but also here, but the service still has to happen. And so this, this is a load of stress. I'm in a stress storm. I had a great time with my kids this week, but getting ready for all the details for Sunday and keeping things going and communicating with people, stressful, stress storm. And um, I'm terrible about including other people in that stress. So then on top of that, a good friend of mine who's important to me calls me and leaves me a message yesterday and says, hey, in the interest of honesty and not avoiding conflict, I feel like we should have a conversation. And immediately I knew in my heart that they were right. Because when I get stressed, I start dropping balls, communicating half-truths, not following through, And uh, I don't even know at this point what it is they have to say, but I know that they're right. So now I'm in a stress storm and a shame storm all at the same time. So what's my first thought? I wish I could crawl into a hole in the ground and never come out again. Maybe I could get on an airplane. I could fly away. I would be thousands of miles away before the Sunday morning service happened, thousands of miles away from my friends, and I'll never have to deal with the shame, and I'll be long gone before anyone knows what an incredibly incompetent person I am. It only lasted for about three seconds, but I had the thought. So then my next thought is, well, that's ridiculous. That's not going to work. Maybe I'll come up with a plan. So this will never happen again. I'll fix it by my own efforts. I'll be so busy fixing it that everyone will be so amazed at how dramatically I fixed it, they'll not notice how disorganized I was in the first place. I do both of these things frequently because I am the son of my great-grandfather, William Joseph Remington. We're runner-awayers and self-atoners. But then I had a good moment. I called another good friend because I could tell I'm not going to get out of this self-fix-it mode on myself. So I called another friend who's a believer, told him everything, processed through the whole thing, and he helped me remember what it is to be a son of Christ, a son of Abraham. That in him... My weaknesses are are true. It's not like, well, it wasn't really a big deal. It it didn't really mess up. But I I still have value as a human being. That Christ has put himself in my place. He's not blown away or shocked that that this this is me. And it gives me courage to be honest and call my friend. And instead of saying, if you only knew what kind of week I had, to be able to say, I was wrong. I was wrong. I'm sorry. And to trust in Christ in that place, to be, to have the kind of faith worked over years, not in perfection or money or awesomeness, but in humility, knowing that the Lord has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. He's redeemed me from all evil. And he will, he will be with us. He can be our God. We can trust in him. And even in places like that, life is to be found. Let's pray.